I'm very pleased to welcome today Jacob Meshangama to talk about how we protect freedom of speech in our online age. Jacob is a prolific author on all matters related to the freedom of speech and he has actually a new book coming out soon called Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media, a book that we very much looking forward to read. I think it's due out in the beginning of next year. Jacob is a Danish lawyer and founding director of Justitia, a judicial think tank promoting the rule of law, fundamental human rights and freedom rights. He's also the executive director of the Future of Free Speech Project and author of several studies on free speech, including Rushing to Judgment, Are Short Mandatory Takedown Limits for Online Hate Speech Compatible with the Freedom of Expression? Jacob, I should say, is also the host of the podcast series, Clear and Present Danger, A History of Free Speech. Jacob, very much welcome to our conversation today. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, to be here and thanks for inviting me. I really look forward to this. So, so do I. And let's start the conversation in the United States and the chaotic situation on January the 6th this year, when supporters of Donald Trump gathered in Washington, D.C. to protest against the election results, or what they thought was a stolen election. It all ended in chaos with the storming of the U.S. Capitol, and soon after that, big platforms like Facebook and Twitter canceled the accounts of many users and banned even the United States president from the platform, arguing that Donald Trump and others had used their accounts to stoke the rebellion and spread lies and misinformation. Many political leaders in Europe, including Angela Merkel, reacted critically to these moves by the platform, saying that the denial of access to these platforms is at least problematic from the viewpoint of the freedom of speech. And some even said that this is dangerous for the freedom of speech. So, Jacob, would you agree with that criticism? And would you even say that the moderation rules of big platforms have become a threat to online civil liberties? That's a huge question, but yes, I think at the very least they pose challenges. I would say, on the one hand, I think no one can dispute that you know in 2021, the vast majority of people around the world have unprecedented access to share and access information that you and I could only dream about, you know, 15 years ago. And you know, if you were living in the 90s, for instance. Even though you would have strong free speech protections uh, legally, in practice, it would be a small elite of journalists, editors, politicians, intellectuals who would get to shape public debate and, and really filter what kind of information do we have. And, you know, then there was this positive with the advance of the World Wide Web. There was this idea that now free speech would be an unstoppable force for, for good, for freedom of expression. That was given a lot of impetus with the Arab Spring and, and the role that social media played in allowing savvy tech bloggers uh, and others to document uh, abuses, to, to rally people in Tahrir Square and so on. And we love that in the West, in democracies, when this was happening in authoritarian states. But then at the same time, the World Wide Web was undergoing a change. So we, from a more sort of decentralized horizontal web, we, we move towards what you, I call platformization, 
So you had the emergence of these huge platforms like Facebook, for instance, where you suddenly have billions of people and where Facebook is, this is where you access centrally and share information. And it's basically Facebook's uh, rules and its content moderation rules, practices that determined where the limits for free speech are being drawn. And that will inevitably create a lot of tension because, you know, globally we disagree fundamentally about, you know, where should the limits on free speech be? And even democracies, as we see, you know, when their authority and their values are suddenly being challenged online, when it's not tyrants in the Middle East, uh, when it's democratically elected government, when it's Macron and Merkel, they actually no longer think free free speech on on social media platforms is such a great idea anymore, Uh, then they change their tune. And, And maybe we can come back to how this is you know, history repeating itself. And we see what I call elite panic every time the democratic sphere is being is being enlarged and people who previously didn't have a voice and people with controversial voices are suddenly being thrust into the, the public sphere. So, and, and obviously the, the question of Trump, Trump is an extremely divisive character and, you know, no one can deny that he used his platforms to spread lies and disinformation and that had a profound effect. I, I think, you know, if Donald Trump and his supporters had not waged a systematic campaign of disinformation following the, the election defeat, then it's unlikely that the attack on, on the Capitol would have happened. So, so if you ask me specifically about that incident, I thought that blocking Trump during and immediately after the attack, which was after all, an attack on the heart of American democracy, I thought that was called for. But on the other hand, I, I tend to agree with the uh, with Facebook's, with the, with the oversight board that Facebook has set up, that it was problematic to indefinitely suspend Trump because however controversial Trump is, there are actually a lot of, of people out there who are more extreme. And so this was sort of an, an arbitrary decision, not based on any clear criterion, but more or less, I think, because Trump was now out of power and then Silicon Valley thought, well, now we can actually get rid of this guy who's, who's really done more than anyone perhaps to, to make us unpopular. To follow on from that, what you just said, Jacob, so if you look sort of at not necessarily the specific case, because there's always, there's always going to be sort of nuances that are important to take care of and to look at when you are as for instance, in sort of the heat of January the 6th, you, you need to have some action coming from uh, the big platforms in order to avoid that their platforms actually become part of sort of stoking something which could end up as being sort of a, an, an attack, as I say, on the heart of American democracy. But if we, if we look more at sort of policies that some of these platforms have taken, it could be Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. And if we look at it from the viewpoint of sort of the tradition, the culture of free speech. Can you make a sort of a case here that some type of rules are more problematic than others, that they may lead to sort of more intervention, more censorship of rules than others do? Have we learned anything from the development of the past years? What type of rules that lead to sort of the least intervention or the least consequences for the freedom of speech? Or even are there some type of rules that are more problematic than other rules are? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I'm, I'm delighted you used the, the term a culture of free speech because I think that is the key to the current disconnect and controversies over online free speech in the digital sphere. You know, in the analog age, free speech was very much about the state and the citizen. Today, in our digital age, it's very much a, a relationship first and foremost between users and platforms, but governments are more and more demanding. So the relationship becomes much more complicated because some of the actions that Facebook and Twitter take, we would no one would doubt that that would be a violation of free speech if those were governments. But on the other hand, I think a lot of us also recognize that, you know, there might be good reasons why LinkedIn would not want the same terms of service as Facebook, for instance, because LinkedIn is mainly a platform for professionals to network and brag. But whereas Facebook has a much broader remit, it's, it's about politics, it's about cat videos and, and so on. So some have sort of tried to solve this by just saying, you know, oh, since what goes on on private platforms is not formally to do with free speech, you know, it's not constitutional freedom of expression, it's not human rights, then this is not really a free speech issue. And therefore, we shouldn't care whether Facebook removes, you know, have discriminate on the basis of political opinion, for instance. I don't share that argument fully. I think, you know, if you go back to the leading thinkers about free speech, including Judge Stuart Mill, George Orwell uh, and others, they would say that, that free speech is about more than the government limiting your, your right to free speech. It is actually about a culture of free speech. It's also about how tolerant a society and its dominant institutions are towards ideas that are seen as running against whatever orthodox prevails at a particular moment. And if those informal norms are being you know, those who go against the grain of that orthodoxy, if they are being shunned, then free speech will also suffer. On the other hand, I also don't think it would make sense if Facebook and Twitter should treat speech on their platforms in the same way as governments. I think that would not make sense. And also, I, we tend to speak only about sort of Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We forget that you know there are lots of other many of them smaller uh, sites and, and platforms out there that that also you know differentiate themselves from the larger platforms and therefore one set of rules is not likely to reflect the diversity of platforms out there but this also makes it extremely difficult to come up with a solution i would say sort of from looking at history i would say my takeaway is that whenever you have centralized command and control over information and opinion, that tends to hurt free speech. When you have more decentralized ecosystem of and, and information that has traditionally been a lot better for free speech and diverse opinions. And so I don't like having huge centralized platforms where, you know, governments can use their power both directly and indirectly to sort of have them act as choke points. Because, you know, initially, if, if you look, Facebook and Twitter come out of Silicon Valley, and if you go back 10 years, their ethos was very much this civil libertarian techno utopian attitude where free speech was an unmitigated good, and they would allow anything, more or less, or, or they would model sort of 
their principles on the First Amendment in the US, which is more speech protective than in the European democracies. But once you grow and once you get a lot of stakeholders and once you engage with governments and once you get a lot of global platform where a lot of people don't share that commitment to protecting even extreme speech, these platforms who are, after all, at the end of the day, in it for the money, are not going to die on the hill of extreme speech. You know, Are they going to say, okay, we'll lose all revenue and be kicked out of Germany if we don't defend, if we don't give up the speech right of neo-Nazis. Uh, I think, you know, they're not going to go with the Nazis just to make sort of an extreme example. But the problem with this is that, you know, then it becomes sort of, use a cliche, a, a slippery slope. And what I see is, you know, a, a development where the movement is always towards more and more removals. You know, the, the terms of service and community standards are being expanded. There's a skull creep, so more and more categories are being banned. And you see that if you go to the enforcement reports of Facebook, you'll see a quite explosive development in the number of pieces of content that are being removed. So I think if you go back to the, the last quarter of 2017, it was something like 1.6 million pieces of content removed for hate speech. If you go to the last quarter of 2020, it's 27 million. So that's a dramatic increase. And you and I have no idea of knowing what is included in this, because unlike when governments, at least democratic governments, remove or, or restrict free speech, you know, there you have a process with transparency. It's, it's ultimately a court that decides if someone can be convicted of saying something that, that violates uh, criminal law. That is not the case on these platforms. In fact, almost 99% or 98% of the content removed as hate speech has been proactively identified by automated content moderation, so machine learning, rather than, than human beings. And, you know, machine learning and AI can be great tools for many things, but they're not specifically sophisticated when it comes to context, which is extremely important for determining whether something violates red lines. And then you have a lot of categories that are, you know, hate speech is one of the favorite categories for governments to crack down on. But, you know, definitions of hate speech vary very greatly. And uh, a lot, lots of different groups tend to want to be protected by hate speech bans. And so you basically see the, the scope of hate speech being expanded. And thus you risk a lot of, of comments on current affairs, politics and so on being targeted by that without us knowing, except when some example hits the media, you know, who gets hit the worst and whether there are biases. You know, basically, if you ask any group, you know, if you go to the U.S., conservatives will say, oh, Silicon Valley has a strong anti-conservative bias. If you go to progressives, they will say, oh, Facebook and Twitter hurt minorities and so on. So everyone can sort of cherry pick their example of how these platforms are sort of biased against them. And this creates endless controversies and where you have the platform sort of more or less just making up rules as they go because they, they you know so if there's one controversy they all say okay we'll we'll make sure to crack down on that type of speech in the future and that creates sort of a quilt of incoherent rules that tend to hurt free speech indeed picking up also what you said are we focusing too much on the big platforms here i mean to take a couple of examples with the development we have now with platforms like MeWe, gab Parler, etc. I saw a study coming out just a few days ago suggesting that 
anti-Semitism on Clubhouse has been rampant in many countries and that there is no way for them to basically control what type of, in this case, hate speech that goes on a platform like Clubhouse. I saw a study for Germany, which looked at anti-Semitic postings and the number of viewings of anti-Semitic messages on another platform, not one of the big social media platforms there. And, and to me, I mean, this looks to be sort of a, a really fast growth that has taken place with hate speech. Now, if we move to something else that isn't necessarily hate speech, but taking sort of more of a January the 6th type of example, when you have a very heated situation and you are at the risk of a social platform, social media platform can become complicit in spreading a lot of passion or a lot of sort of intent of trying to destroy democratic institutions. Now, I, I don't know this myself, I haven't seen in a study, but I've seen several suggestions arguing that TikTok and its role in Israel and Palestine today is pretty problematic to use that word in the sense that it has very little control of what type of content that is being put on the platform, leading to sort of a lot of content that is manipulated and it stokes a lot of the frictions that we've seen. I mean, some of this, and I think this has been proven, was in the beginning now of the serious round of conflicts where a lot of sort of manipulated content was sort of making up stories of what, what actually was going on and you had sort of people reacting to that. So coming back to my question, I mean, are we focusing too much on the big platforms, you know, the likes of Facebook and Twitter, when perhaps the most difficult development have now migrated to other platforms and it happens elsewhere? I think there's definitely a tendency to focus too much on the bigger platforms. And that can hurt, you know, and there's also a certain degree of cynicism. So if you, if you look at Facebook, a couple of years ago, Mark Zuckerberg tried to defend having Holocaust denial, for instance, on his platform and gave this speech at Georgetown University where he tried to sort of really go to bat for free speech. It didn't play well. A lot of people criticized him and then he changed his tune. And now Facebook are basically more or less begging to be regulated. And why are they doing that? Well, you know, if you want to be cynical about it, but also that realistic, it's because Facebook has the means and resources to actually implement content moderation at scale at much more efficiently than many others. They may not be able to hit, you know, 100% in each jurisdiction of what, you know, leading opinion and governments want, but they can do a, a pretty good job and they, they will know that, you know, if you have a better product that could compete with Facebook, then it might be very difficult to, if you have to spend sort of 30% of your R&D budget on developing the necessary algorithms and, and hire, you know, thousands and thousands of content moderators and you don't have the resources to do something like that. So that's a bit cynical. And that's the danger of sort of focusing too much on specific platforms who then also get to be the ones who, through their, their relationship with regulators and, and decision makers, get to have a huge say in the design that, that sort of fits them uh, specifically and may actually have unintended consequences or not so or not so unintended consequences for others. But I think when we talk about TikTok and, all, and others, I also think, you know, Governments in democratic states, especially, they have to basically accept that in a digital world, 
if you want to be a democracy and base yourself on, on fundamental value of free speech, you will not be able to control the public space completely. So if you purge a lot of people, Trump supporters, from Facebook and Twitter, that might result in a drop on these platforms. But a lot of those who are purged will then migrate to messaging apps. They'll, they'll migrate to Telegram, for instance. We saw a huge spike in Telegram after Trump supporters were purged from Power uh, and, and other things. And, and then, you, you know, is it better to have, you know, extremists on major platforms where we can engage with them, where, where they're more or less out in the open, or, or is it better to have them hidden away on smaller platforms where they can still spread their ideas, but are opposed with less publicity and maybe also away from the eyes of the law enforcement and so on. So I don't, you know, this is something that goes back to, to sort of the middle of the 19th century, where European states finally, most European states finally gave up pre-publication censorship. This was not necessarily because they were, you know, against it on principle. It was just a realization that, you know, their populations had reached a certain level of literacy. Print technology had become so sophisticated, and also, you know, books could be spread across borders. So it was basically it didn't make sense anymore to try to stop print newspapers, books at the source, but instead they ramped up their post-publication censorship operations. And I think, you know, governments in our age will have to accept this loss of control and say, you know, the idea that we can eradicate hate speech or that we will, that we can eradicate disinformation does not make sense. But that is simply not possible anymore. And also, it's not a new phenomenon, by the way. It, it, it was always there, but now, you know, the harm, hates, and hoaxes have been amplified, certainly. Even though, you know, you, you mentioned studies that, that showed a spike in certain types of hate speech, and, and that will, you know, the, the Israel-Palestine conflict will almost inevitably result in a spike of anti-Semitism and maybe also anti-Muslim sentiments. But, you know, there are a number of studies that actually suggest that hate speech, you know, the absolute number is obviously huge. Of hate speech, you can find hundreds of thousands, but the proportion of, of the total content is minuscule when it comes to this. And this is also true of disinformation. So a lot of studies have, have really questioned this idea that was around 2017, 2018, that basically fake news had decided to be the American election. It was only because of fake news that you know Americans had been duped into voting for, for Donald Trump. That, I think, rests on pretty slim evidence. But we have a tendency as human beings to focus on the negative aspect and take for granted all the positive aspects. But I think, you know, we forget how important free speech is, is for us, and, you know, how completely, how, how unprecedented it is that you and I can sit in different parts of the world and communicate with other those who might be viewing from anywhere in the world without any controls. This is something that has never been possible for for generations before us, and it has led to a lot of goods that, but that we just take them for granted, and we don't see the, the, the positive aspects of these things, but we focus very much on the negative ones, and we maybe do not balance these things properly against each other. And then, you know, if we say that the, the negative aspects, if, if we focus all our efforts on them, then we risk undermining all the positive aspects of these things, and that's very much
I think that is a very good point, Jacob. Another very good point you just made, which I think should receive a lot more attention, sort of, is that the evidence out there isn't really suggesting that we are becoming more tribal because of social media. We have been tribal for a very, very long time. And sort of, if I go back and look at sort of my own personal history, what life was like sort of in the 1970s or 1980s, it wasn't as, you know, as we were all open, tolerant, people who readily accepted the viewpoints of other people. And sort of the, a lot of studies that are out there right now looking at issues like, you know, tribal tendencies of social media, filter bubbles, etc., tend to basically point out that there is not very much evidence out there suggesting that this is the case. Now, let's move on to talk a little bit more about government actions and what governments are doing. Because, I mean, big platforms aren't just acting on the basis of their own volition. Governments are also imposing more behavioral norms and restrictions on what platforms should or perhaps shouldn't do. So if we start in Europe, we have here, we have policies on online hate speech and illegal content with rules mandating what platforms should do when they get flagged about illegal content. We also have special regulations on terrorism with mandated takedown actions for platforms there. We have a new proposal on the table in Europe called the Digital Services Act that expands on the current body of laws and regulation and that puts many new behavioral norms on platforms that easily, I think, can be seen as an attempt to widen the scope of moderation policies to include content that, you know, it may be illegal or it probably isn't illegal, but it may be objectionable and it may be problematic from other viewpoints. And I think this perhaps goes to the heart of the issue of civil liberties online because now we are talking about measures that are being taken by a government so it's not just sort of a culture of free speech it's also the the legal framework for free speech so i was hoping we could start a conversation here by talking about what you would say are legitimate actions by government and perhaps also what are illegitimate actions when it comes to the feel of mandatory behavioral regulations that comes from governments on the platforms yeah so so sort of the uh, the gold standard of so-called uh, intermediary liability laws is, is the nets dg the, the network enforcement act that germany adopted in 2017 and, and entered into to full force in, in 2018 which says that platforms which with i think two million users have to remove flagged manifestly unlawful illegal content within 24 hours or risk fines of up to 50 million euros and we've seen a lot of countries copying that so we've done two studies a year apart and the first study i think we've identified 12 or 13 countries around the world that had more or less copy pasted the german model and last year we released another one and and i think that showed 23 or 24 countries. And the interesting thing is the countries involve Russia, Belarus, Venezuela, Turkey, Singapore, and so on. So the majority of these countries are not democracies. They are illiberal states. And many of them actually explicitly reference the German president. So obviously they do it in bad faith. It's not, and they don't include the same rule of law protections and, and constitutional protections of free speech that you would have in Germany where you have, you know, independent courts that will do a balancing act of free speech versus competing interests. But it nonetheless, I think, sh shows the, the problematic nature 
of open democracies sort of creating a prototype because when we're talking about the internet, we're talking about social media, these are global platforms. And therefore I think there's an obligation on open democracies to be the guardians of free speech rather than those that unwittingly forge the chains with which authoritarian states can bind their own citizens in cyberspace. And I think this shows that the unintended consequences of legislation online are huge. If you ask the German government, it will show you its, its assessment of an STP and it will say, well, there's really no evidence that this has led to overblocking. But that's because the platforms like Facebook uh, and Twitter, most of the takedowns are not done under the STP. As a result, in order to basically say, well, we don't want to risk a 50 million euro fine because we host uh, neo-Nazis, so we don't want to take a chance. We will just expand our definition of hate speech and, and, and other categories that, that might uh, mirror categories that are prohibited under German law. And then we will police them vigorously on our platform. So what we've seen, so I mentioned to you the statistics in the growth of takedowns on, on hate speech under uh, Facebook's transparency reports, and they mirror quite nicely whether this is, you know, I cannot prove a direct causal relationship, but it is quite stunning that this huge growth happened, you know, after the next GG and, and similar laws were adopted. So I think, you know, Europe has played, I think, European democracy. And also, you know, the commission has on many times sort of threatened to adopt similar rules. They have adopted, of course, this, this code of conduct on, on hate speech and this voluntary agreement on hate speech. But these agreements that they that, that made on hate speech and, and disinformation are, I would say, what Don Corleone called an offer you can't refuse. So, so it's basically saying, hey, Facebook and Twitter, would you like to enter into a voluntary agreement with the European Commission about removing stuff as fast as possible? No? Well, well then, you know, we have legislation that we could uh, impose on you. So I think this is uh, problematic from point of view, especially of democracies, also because you look at Freedom House's annual reports on internet freedom, you actually see, I think, 10 years, a decade of retrograde development where online free speech has been in decline. And, you know, I think it's very difficult, you know, when Macron, as France, adopt a fake news law that, that allows courts to order removal of misinformation prior and during elections, then it becomes difficult to tell Modi in India that his ordering of Twitter and Facebook to remove what they label as misinformation showing how they've botched their handling of COVID. You know, what authority, what legitimacy do democracies have when they actually are, are the trailblazers? So I think that democracies have to be the trailblazers inculcating this culture of free speech, which means resisting this tendency of elite panic that has always that, that always accompanies technological developments coupled with providing a voice to previously voiceless groups that perhaps elites and those who dominate the public sphere pre preferred were not given a voice in the public sphere. But on the other hand, of course, there are, as I said, you know, you know, if you have a criminal law and people say something, you know, that goes against the criminal law, then obviously government should be able to, to punish it. So if I one of the things that I think is particularly important is to be 
more assertive in cracking down on threats because you know there's a tendency online to use threats more casually you know because you might think you know just sending a threat over you know online is fast you don't have to think about you know if i were to send you a threat by snail mail <laughs> it would take a long time and i would probably have calmed down thought about it twice i might not do that if we're in a heated argument but i think threats you know threats don't advance an argument it's not about a viewpoint it's a direct attempt to stifle speech so that's something that governments i think should legitimately crack down on but i think there are actually there's also some promising research which which actually shows that some elements of counter speech can actually help reduce hate speech and of course ever since 2016 there's a whole cottage industry you know mention a prominent think tank or university which doesn't have some specific program on disinformation and misinformation now everyone is dealing about these things and you know some of the work is not very good some of it is brilliant and that obviously is also helps us to develop our system of what one author has called open vigilance sort of training us as individuals to to no longer have this sort of maybe initially you know and at the infancy of social media we all, we we treated everything that we saw as great we you know we were not as skeptical but of course we have to be skeptical as users on free speech we have to distinguish between what is written by some random dude on free speech and what is being you know gone through a, a vetting process of professional journalism or, or and, and so on but it's a very you know psychologically it's very difficult for human beings and for governments to sit idly by when there are people who mobilize whose ideas go against the very ideals and fundamentals of, of democracy uh, and they they might seem to be gaining traction on these platforms so that that that's very difficult psychologically to ignore to 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 tolerate i would say indeed let me sort of um, put three examples to you and see sort of how if we can discuss a bit sort of um, what may be problem- problematic or what is not problematic from the viewpoint sort of a free speech and having sort of a, a legal framework for what we can do online so three typical measures being taken right now is basically we have mandated takedown rules on platforms so that's one we have pretty huge fines for platforms that have been found in violation of these mandatory behavioral regulations that exist for them and i would assume that when you have large fines it basically leads to a situation which you were discussing previously which is that well better safe than sorry we practice sort of more of a shock and awe strategy here in order to sort of to censor and to moderate or to take down a lot just to, to be on the sort of on, on the safe side we don't know if there is actually any violation or if there if there is hate speech if there's something illegal going on here but we we censor it anyway because we we can't take the risk of uh, getting a fine which is pretty substantial so we have these type of rules are all these type of measures difficult from a viewpoint sort of of securing online freedom of speech or are, are they am i sort of exaggerating the effect that they may have on what platforms are doing I think if you're right so I don't I'm not happy with the mandatory takedown that that especially not when they're combined with huge fines and also I you know I think it's it's strange in a sense that we've sort of just come to accept that the the remedy for speech that is either illegal or violates 
terms of service is that it must be deleted. You know, if I say something that runs contrary to, to a law, it does not, you know, we don't normally go around burning newspapers or books anymore. We used to do that <laughs> in previous times. We don't anymore. So, you know, I think for me, the best solution is not necessarily one of law. It's more one of architecture or, or decentralization. I think, you know, you and I are old enough to uh, both probably have had a blog at, at one point and, and sort of be enthusiastic about the blogosphere. And, you know, and no one really cared about content moderation or anything at the time because, you know, a, a blog, if it was really successful, had hundreds of thousands of readers, maybe some had millions, but no one had 2.7 billion users and they didn't distribute content in the same way that these huge platforms do. So if you had 250,000 neo-Nazis congregating on one blog, you know, that was not necessarily a huge problem. Most of us would not get to engage it. And, and so the ecosystem was so decentralized that, you know, we could still believe in the initial promise of free and equal speech that the internet promised. That's no longer the case. So my hope is that we can get back to some of that. That might take, you know, innovation. It might be, you know, it might be competition law. I don't have a, a I'm just a lawyer, so I don't have the perfect answer. But I think that a compromise now would be to sort of to say, okay, international human rights law actually has some standards and they're pretty stringent when it comes to hate speech, like in the sense that they're quite speech protected, much more so than what follows under German law, what follows under the European Court of Human Rights jurisprudence. So limit this to, to the sort of the worst aspects that where there's incitement to some harmful conduct. And then, you know, you and I might be deeply offended about specific content that goes against some value that, that we care about, but then let the users have more influence over what type of, type of content they want to be confronted with. So rather than have that determined, centralized by platforms or, or governments. So, so, so the centralized content moderation would be limited to sort of the worst of the worst, but you and I could then filter our own news feeds and, and comments. Of course, the, you know, the downside of this would, could be that the dreaded filter bubble effect that might actually be a thing, but I think that would be preferable rather than having sort of a one-size-fits-all where it almost certainly becomes the, the lowest common denominator if we are to please everyone. So, so I think the best solution would be a more decentralized social media environment. Uh, the next best solution would be one where you try to use international human rights law, the ICCPR, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights as the benchmark for the worst of the worst, and then leave users to be their own sort of first line of defense against offensive uh, content rather than put it in the hands of American tech companies or governments. Yep. The, the third example, as you just mentioned it, that I was, I was going to bring up is also which comes in the Digital Services Act now, which is a requirement to have systemic monitoring of content on platforms. And here would my fear would be sort of that systemic monitoring might sound innocent when we talk about it like that, but sort of when you feed it into the type of moral moderation practices and algorithms that we've had, sort of that we've seen developed over the past two years, this may actually lead to 
a lot more uh, moderation and takedown of material that simply isn't in violation of anything. It isn't even objectionable. It just may just be sort of that one individual have said something in the past that may be objectionable and therefore is going to be censored for the future. Now, I, I want to ask you an, another question, which is also looking at now sort of taking more from the digital services act, but also looking perhaps at a broader discussion here at more perhaps constructive policies and proposals. There is an attempt in Europe to have some sort of out of court settlement between users that have seen their content being moderated, or perhaps they have had their accounts cancelled overall. What would be sort of a good policy here from sort of a freedom of speech perspective? Is the Facebook model with an oversight board, do you think that is a, as a good model? Should we work with having access to more formal institutions for settling disputes, settling perhaps even more fundamental problems that may have arisen as a consequence of moderation activities? Is there sort of a, a good way of, to think about this in a freedom of speech context where at least we allow some degree of appeal? I think really it's good that we see some experimenting really because I don't think anyone has a perfect answer. You know, there's been a lot of skepticism about the oversight board. I tend to think, you know, reading, having read quite a few of its, of its decisions and also having sort of commented on them in the consultation process, I think they tend to be quite speech protective and they have, I think, struck down uh, the, the vast majority of the decisions where, where Facebook has removed or blocked content. So I think that might be promising, but you know, again, it's not a court, so its policies, its decisions are not necessarily relevant for everyone, everyone else. The problem with sort of having, you know, it sounds really promising to have users have a right to challenge when if, if stuff is removed. The problem is, you know, we did a study, you, you mentioned it called Rushing to Judgment, and we showed that in the European countries that we looked at using very sparse data, so it was more indicative than an authoritative study, but I think the average was that hate speech cases in a number of like five or six European countries, it, it was something like 700 days that the authorities used to determine whether someone who had said something should be convicted or not for hate speech. And so if you have 2.7 billion users and everyone has to have a right to challenge in a meaningful sense the content moderation policies, then that will be uh, time consuming. Of course, I mean, it would have to be automated in a way. So that would create, would require, you know, the engineers to be really be able to develop some pretty robust algorithms that could take into account context and so on. If that's possible, well, you know, why not let, let's, let's try it. But again, you know, if we move towards a more decentralized model, then that would not be necessary because you had smaller, more decentralized platforms rather than these huge ones. Yeah. Let us talk a little bit more about the future and the development of civil liberties online and what governments are doing. Now, if I'm simplifying things quite a lot, I think we can say that there are two more fundamental views out there. One saying that big social media companies are private entities and should be allowed to set their own standards for what they allow on their platforms. The other view is that these big platforms are now part of what we can call the public square 
and therefore they should be regulated in a way that conforms to rules that perhaps would apply for protection for freedom of speech more generally in a society. We have, for instance, I've seen this in America, that there is a, a sort of a, a call for First Amendment principle to apply on platforms as well. We have touched upon this issue already, Jacob, but sort of, can you just sort of flesh out your view here? What would be your take on this discussion? Are these platforms, especially the big ones, are they entirely private or are they also part of the public square and should have some freedom of speech regulations imposed upon them? Well, they certainly are part of the public sphere. And, you know, this is where debate and, and the sharing of information is, is happening. It's also where traditional media have become reliant on sharing a lot of their information. But it doesn't necessarily mean that if you imposed free speech protections on them, uh, that, you know, it would strengthen free speech. I think almost inevitably it would, you know, if governments were to regulate this, then I think it would almost inevitably lead to less rather than more free speech. And, and you know, look at the, the, the British online harms bill, where I think the idea is that you have to have a, a regulator and then there's a duty of care to both relieve, remove illegal, but also certain types of harmful content, whatever harmful, whatever harmful means. But also, I think it's just, you know, and, and I might be contradicting myself here a bit because I've argued that international human rights standards be used by platforms, but I think it would be difficult to require them legally to do so. I, I think in, in many ways, these platforms are just too different from states to be able to apply it in a rigorous manner. And I, you know, certainly when I see all the different attempts by by Republicans and Democrats in the US to change the, the CDA 230 over there, it seems clear to me that governments, uh, you know, in the current development state of our states of, of social media and internet would really limit free speech online if they were to, to regulate it. But, you know, we, we might get developments. I think in Germany, you have a number of court cases where courts are actually determining whether it violated the constitution or not that Facebook removed stuff. And I think yes, some of those decisions might go to the constitutional court. I'm not a, an expert in any ways in, in German constitutional law, but that's my, that's my understanding. And, and so it'll be interesting to see where that ends up. But I would say, you know, I don't think we would have had as, you know, the, the whole, the, the success which platforms, social media platforms have, have had in basing themselves on user-generated comment, which basically allows you and me to share information if it hadn't been sort of the, the, the more American model where they are, A, in general, not uh, liable for user-generated content with, with some exceptions, but also are generally free to adopt their own content moderation policies. But again, this whole ecosystem, this sort of virtuous circle also depends on this underlying culture of free speech and that being respected by both governments and users. And that becomes extremely difficult when platforms are global and have to manage the expectations and, and very, very different views on the limits of free speech of, of governments and, and users around the world. All right, Jacob, 
thank you so much for taking the time to share your views analysis with us it's been very informative very enlightening i enjoy this conversation very much